Romans chapter 13 this morning. We're in the practical living chapters of the book of Romans, the chapters that are specifically talking about the life that we live as believers, the path that we follow, that, that direct our steps. Paul gives practical instruction, instructions on how we are to live out our new life in Christ. And I say new, some of us have been believers for a long time, but it is new in the sense that it is different from the old way of life that we had. Having recognized our sinful condition and believed in the message of the gospel, becoming justified by faith, we now live a sanctified life, a life that is set apart in every way for our Lord, and that life comes with expectations, with obligations that we have. The very first expectation that we have is to God, and we saw that back in the very first verses of chapter 12, which are really those first two verses govern everything that Paul is talking about for several chapters here. We are now to present ourselves over to him completely for service as a living, holy, and acceptable sacrifice. After talking about that expectation, about that obligation that we have, Paul then went into the subsequent expectations, or we could really say details on how that first one is lived out. And again, that's what these chapters are all about. The first thing that we saw was centered around our own obligation to the church, to this local body, to serve in this body by using our spiritual gifts to build each other up, to edify one another, to allow this body to function as it should, with every member doing its part. Then we saw expectations that we have towards others. We talked about love is without hypocrisy. We are to show hospitality. We are to give preference to one another in honor. Never pay back evil for evil or take your own revenge. We're just some of the examples of things that we saw in the rest of chapter 12. He started there again in those verses from verse 9 through verse 21, talking about our relationships in the church, and then he expanded it out to other areas, things that would include those that are outside the church as well. There are specific ways in which we are to honor God by living our lives, showing our conduct to be above reproach, not just in the sight of God, but even in the sight of men. These are all areas in which we have obligations. We have a responsibility to respond in a certain way in all of our relationships that is pleasing to God. Now, we ended chapter 12 with verse 21, and he basically summarized all that he'd been saying from the previous eight verses where he said, do not, over, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In the Christian life, this should always be true of God's children. We are never to give in to sin, to evil, but we should always make a decision to do what is good and right in God's eyes. Remember early in chapter 12, I mentioned those first two verses, but the second verse, verse 2, talks about as, as we have become sanctified and we begin to become more and more like Christ and we gain understanding into the mind of God, he said, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. As we study his word, and the Holy Spirit gives us understanding into the very mind of God through what he reveals in his word. We know what is good. We know what is acceptable and perfect in God's eyes. 
We know his will, and that's why studying the scripture is so important. Because we have the word of God, and we are being transformed to have the mind of Christ, and that means that there's a difference in us. And there should be a difference in the way that we live. This is how we are set apart. We are sanctified for God. As believers living this sanctified life, when it comes to anything that we do, we have choices to make. Whether to do what is right or not. That's a choice that every single one of us faces. I have been given a spiritual gift. I can choose to use it or I can choose not to. Do what's right or do what's wrong. That's a decision that I make as a believer every day. I can choose to be devoted to you in brotherly love or not. I can approach my service with fiery fervency or not. I can give my enemies a blessing or I can avenge myself on them. These are decisions that we are called upon to make every day, and our response to every situation comes down to this. Have we truly presented these bodies over as a sacrifice to God or not? Again, these are things that make us different from the world around us, that make us stand out from those who are in the world, who are still enslaved to their flesh. As believers in Jesus Christ, we are now to live lives that are enslaved to righteousness, to the very deeds that are approved and acceptable before God. And the principles and details that Paul is presenting here is the elaboration of what he told us back in chapter 6. In verses 12 and 13 of Romans 6, he said, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. This is what we're talking about. We are no longer overcome by evil, turning our bodies over to sin to obey its lusts, but we are to overcome evil with good, presenting the members of our bodies as instruments of righteousness to God. We live differently. We live in a way that pleases God. We live in a way that is right before Him. Now, as we come to chapter 13 of Romans, we get into another area where we have responsibility, where we have a decision to make as to how we will conduct ourselves. And keep in mind, just because we turn a page in our Bible, we turn from chapter 12 into chapter 13, that doesn't mean that there's a break in Paul's thought process here. That doesn't mean that we have ended talking about the commands that we are to follow, and we have now turned a corner into commands that are optional, or commands that are just nice to have. Now, this is a continuation of his thought process. This is a continuation from what he's talking about in the last chapter. And we'll even see that it's related to what he was talking about at the end of chapter 12. But in the first verses of chapter 13, he talks about our responsibility to government and civil authority. And this section has never been a very popular one amongst believers. And I would guess that there's not very many people, not very many Christians, that when you ask them, well, what's your favorite part of the Bible? Oh, I really love Romans 13, 1 through 7. Probably in the minority of people that love this section. And especially in the last few years, this subject has come under much scrutiny amongst believers. It hasn't escaped anyone's notice that when we talk about government today, 
that has played an ever-increasing role in our lives recently to the level that has made many people, believers, churches, uncomfortable. And yet here we are, starting into a section where Paul talks about how we are to submit to the governing authorities. Now the question that's before us is, what should our response be to this section? And we won't sugarcoat it. You can all read it just as well as I can. You all know where we're going with this. He starts off the chapter. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. That's the first command he gives here. This is an area that I think we need to be very careful with, especially today, because our thoughts and opinions on this run extremely high. In our country, no one's denying that things have changed or things seem to be different or things seem to be going in a direction that maybe we're not on board with, maybe we don't really care for. Therefore, when that happens, this command here starts to leave a bitter taste, right? There are certain commands in scriptures that that when you're told to do something that you're already doing or that you don't have a problem with, that command, I love that command. But then a command comes that maybe you're not quite on board with, then it becomes more difficult. But yet, even though things have changed or even though we perceive things as changing around us, here it is. It's the same thing today as it said five years ago, as it said 50 years ago, as it said 2,000 years ago when Paul wrote this. Because of the strong opinions that we may have towards our responsibility with government today, I, before we actually get into the verses, I want to point out a few things um, that I think we need to keep in mind as we go through this section. The first one being, this is what God is commanding us to do. As we go along in the book of Romans, and this section that deals with the expectation on us as believers, this is the next command that God has for us. Now, you'll note that I didn't say Paul has for us. And I certainly didn't say this is what I have for you because this isn't my, my command. But this is God's inspired word. And this is the command from God to his children. Some people would say, well, they come to this section and say, well, you know, Paul didn't get it. Paul didn't understand our situation. Paul couldn't have known what things would be like today when he wrote this. He just didn't know. But when you think that, if, if you think that way, insert God in for Paul in that situation, because this is what God inspired Paul to write. God didn't understand our situation. God couldn't have known what things would be like today. And you start to realize that argument doesn't really hold water. Changes in our society or our culture or our personal situations do not change what God has told us in his word. They do not change the commands that God has given us. And we'll look at the details of this as we move through. But moving from chapter 12 into chapter 13, the instructions for us here do not suddenly become optional. The second thing that I think we should keep in mind as we go through here is really a question. Why would we immediately look for exceptions to what God commands us? When we come to chapter 13 and we start to talk about submitting ourselves to the government almost without fail, if you're like me, I'm probably revealing more about myself than maybe I'm giving you guys. 
But almost without fail, the first thought that comes to mind is, what are the exceptions to this rule? God says obey the government, but what about this case? What about that case? What if this is going on? What if that is going on? Now, I'm not saying that there aren't exceptions, but I think it's a dangerous, slippery slope that we go down when God commands something of us and we immediately start contemplating How do we get out of this one? How was this not applying to us? God, God, in the last chapter, God commanded us to serve in the body with our spiritual gifts. Do we instantly start looking for ways? What are the exceptions for that? How can I not serve with my spiritual gift? He commanded us to be of the same mind with one another or toward one another. How can I get out of that? How can I not be of the same mind with you? How can I distance myself from you? What exceptions can I find that I don't have to do that? We have clear instructions in Scripture to not forsake our own assembling together. This is one that we've talked about many times over the last couple of years. People have looked at this one many times, and we've been reminded of this because this is one area where the church and the government have clashed recently. Different communities, different parts of the world, it's come across differently. But is it it appropriate for us to immediately try to find a ways to get out of that? That's a command, right? Should I look at that command and say, how can I not meet with the church? What exceptions are there for me to get out of going to church each week? How sad would it be for us if that was our attitude towards the commands that God clearly gives us in his word? I would hope that we would all agree that we should not immediately be looking for exceptions to the commands that God gives us. Well, here in chapter 13, we are given a clear command as well. So I think we need to guard our thinking when we approach this section of Scripture and look at it from the standpoint of what is God wanting me to do, not how can I get out of this? The third thing I think we need to keep in mind The type of government does not make a difference here. I don't think I'd be going out on a limb if I said that the government that we're in today or the government as it exists today, I don't want to get political here, but I'll just say there may be some things that we don't agree with. There may be some things that we're not completely on board with. I think we're all looking forward to what maybe the next election cycle might hold, or maybe we're dreading what the next election cycle might hold. But we don't, we don't like things today mostly because we see our country on what we would think is a decline, politically, morally, a lot of seemingly underhanded things that appear to be happening at the highest levels. But does that matter? Does that any of that make any difference at all with this command, with what God is commanding us here. The first thing that I want to mention, two points within this point, is that governments exist in different times and in different parts of the world have always been different, have always had variations. Paul was writing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit during a time when who was in charge in Rome. He's writing this to the Romans, and who's in charge in Rome? Nero, the Caesars, are the, are the heads of the government in Rome. 
Have you ever studied the Caesars? Have you ever studied that history? A few years before this, a man by the name of Gaius, better known as Caligula, had been in charge. He was a man who claimed to be divine. I think most of the Caesars, if not all the Caesars, claimed to be divine. Possibly there's a rumor that he murdered his predecessor in order to be on the throne. He was known for murdering on a whim. As Paul was writing this letter again, Nero was the one that was in charge in Rome. If you don't know anything about Nero, Nero was someone who killed his own mother. He persecuted Christians. He, he was the main persecutor of Christians and who history tells us was in power when both Peter and Paul were executed, put to death by Rome. Basically, Paul does not write this to say, only subject yourself to the government when they're good guys, when they're great. Or he doesn't write this to say, I understand that the perfect democratic republic looks like this. That's what you're supposed to be submitting yourself to. That's not what he says. The things that we have going on around us, potential alleged crimes that we'd like to see people answer for in government, pale in comparison to what was going on in Paul's day when he actually wrote this. And we also need to remind ourselves that even today, not even just looking back in time at, at Rome, but even today, our government that we look at, that we're concerned with, does not rule over the whole world. There are other governments out there, and specifically other churches under other governments, that these commands that we have here in Romans 13 also apply to. There are churches in Russia, there are churches in China, there are churches in Muslim countries that don't look anything like our church, but are groups of believers that are meeting together anyway. And all of those churches also have the book of Romans in their Bible and also have Romans 13 in their Bibles. They are still responsible for obeying the same commands that we have here. The quality or the morality or the goodness of the authorities that are above us isn't addressed here. Paul doesn't make mention of that. And yet the command is the same, be in subjection to the authorities. As believers, we should expect that those in leadership and power might not be on the up and up when it comes to good versus evil. And why do I say that? Well, because that's another reason why the type of government doesn't apply. Because all government really is under Satan's authority. We need to remember that human government on the earth today during this time before the Lord's return isn't a good thing. And we shouldn't expect it to be a good thing. God is still absolutely 100% sovereignly in control of all his creation. Nobody's saying that God has given up sovereign control. But for this current time, he has allowed Satan to have authority here. And he has allowed Satan to have power here. 1 John 5, 19, we know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Ephesians 2, 2 says, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Ephesians 6, 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, In those 
I'm sorry, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. These are all verses revealing that power and authority in this world today does not lie in us. It lies under the authority of Satan. Daniel chapter 10 the angel comes to Daniel to give him a message. But he was delayed for 21 days by the prince of Persia, who was a demon, who, who is specifically in authority over Persia. And he was able to withstand the messenger of God for 21 days. In Luke chapter 4, when Jesus is tempted by Satan in the wilderness... Satan offers him all the kingdoms of the world, if only Jesus would bow down and worship him. And he says that the world has been handed over to him. The authority on the earth today is in Satan's hands. The governments that are at work are part of that system. As a result of that, we understand that they stand opposed to us. They are not on our side. And yet... God's command is that we are to subject ourselves to them. Why? How can that be? Why would we subject ourselves to that kind of authority? Well, we'll talk about that. But one of the, one of the things is, and the, the fourth thing that I think we need to keep in mind, is that we are just passing through. We do not truly belong here anymore. We live in this world. We live in this country. Most of us would probably say, if not all of us, would probably say we love this country. But this country, this world, is no longer our true home. Turn with me over to Philippians chapter 3. I do realize we're supposed to be studying Romans. And we'll get there shortly. But look at Philippians 3 with me for a minute. Throughout Philippians 3, Paul's talking about how he focuses on what's to come. He talks about how his past in Judaism means nothing to him in light of his salvation. He looks at all that as, as garbage, as, as rubbish. He talks about having suffered the loss of all things in his life here on earth, and that he doesn't care about the loss of all those things. In verse 14, he says that he presses on for the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. In verses 17 through 19, he tells the Philippians to follow his example, and not, those, uh, not the example of those who have their minds focused here, focused on the things of this earth, but where should they be focused? Verse 20, Philippians 3.20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. We are not citizens here. We are passing through. All that goes on around us is the functioning of a world to which we no longer belong. We are called to function here. We are called to live here. We are called to serve here. In light of the coming of the Lord who will take us home to be with him forever, and one day we will enjoy serving him in his glorious kingdom for all eternity. That is our blessed hope. That is what we are anxiously anticipating, the going home. It's as if today we are traveling in a foreign country. Think of a foreign country that you would like to travel to. With the things going on in the world today, there are, that, that list is getting smaller and smaller, I understand. But 
if you like to travel, think of a foreign country that you would like to go to. While we're in that foreign country, what do we do? Hopefully we obey their laws, right? We, we do what they say needs to be done. It might be different from what we have here, but we would obey their laws. But all the while that we're there, we know that's not truly where we belong. So that should be our perspective here as well. As we wait for the Lord's return, we understand that we are anxiously awaiting something else. Now, I know that was a lot of introduction, but I think we need to keep these things in mind as we look at these verses. God is commanding us to be subject to the government that we find ourselves under. Okay, while I'm living here on this earth, awaiting the glorious return of our Savior, living a life in obedience and submission to Him, that is just another part of what I am called to do. All that we have here, my job, my home, my income, all that from a worldly perspective might give some definition of who I am, but that's all secondary to the life that I live for God. A life that I live is a living, holy, and acceptable sacrifice for Him. So now in verses 1 through 7 of Romans 13, Paul is going to present the basic response that we should have towards government. He states it very simple and very straightforward. But he makes it very clear what the response to government is to be for believers. Our conduct toward the government which we function under should flow out of this passage. Verse 1 of chapter 13, we, we see that it should be the same for every man. He says, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. Simply put, this is God's plan for the order that he has established on the earth. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. When we talk about every person, who are we talking about? Every person, right? It's not that hard. There's no distinction or exception here. Of course, Paul is writing this to the Roman believers. We've, we've mentioned before that we can't expect unbelievers to live a life in obedience to God's word. But he's basically saying the general rule here applies, and most people wouldn't have an issue with that statement. People, believer or unbeliever, are to submit to the authorities that are over them. Laws exist in a society that people living in that society need to follow. Looking around the world, you see this in evidence everywhere. It's a universal provision from God. You would be hard-pressed to find a country or a community of some sort that doesn't have some sort of ruling authority, whether it's a president or a prime minister or a king or a village elder. Some type of authority exists in every society. It existed for the Romans. It exists for us today. And these are the two cases that are really relevant for us here. What is every person to do? Be in subjection to those governing authorities. The word for subjection here means to be arranged under the authority of. It's a military type word, like you would be under the authority of someone else. To place yourself under the authority of the, gover or under the, authority of the governing authorities to recognize and submit to their place over you. In God's creation, he has established this hierarchy. And as his children, as we've become saved and are now citizens of heaven, we are still subject to this hierarchy as long as we live here in this world. We live as ambassadors for Christ, representing him to the world, but yet we are still called to function here on earth. 
Notice what it doesn't say here. It doesn't say be in subjection to the governing authorities that you agree with or that hold the same values as you. It doesn't say that anywhere. He simply says be in subjection to the governing authorities. Now, in the last part of the verse, he gives the reason why we are to do this. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Where does all authority come from? Who has established the leaders and rulers? God has. He has established them all. Whoever has power over anyone or anything else, it has come from one place only, God himself. God is sovereign over the entire earth, over all creation, and it is he in his sovereignty who dictates those who hold power on the earth. This is important for us to realize because not only is the command on this from God, but the reason behind the command is because the authority that they have comes from God. Turn with me over to the Gospel of John. Well, we're going to go to several passages. I'm just going to warn you, we're not going to get very far today, so don't be worried too much about the time. I'll worry about the time. But look over in John chapter 19. As the Jews are crying out for his execution, for Jesus' execution, they tell Pilate that, that he deserves death because he claims to be the Son of God. Being afraid, Pilate asks him where he's from. But Jesus doesn't answer him. Look at verse 10 of John 19. So Pilate said to him, you do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? So Pilate's the one in charge here. How dare this man not answer him? Doesn't Jesus know that Pilate holds the power of his life and his death in his very hands? He had the power of Rome behind him. He was a representative of Rome. He had that power behind him. What does Jesus say in verse 11? Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. Jesus doesn't dispute the fact that Pilate had authority over him. He doesn't say, you don't have authority over me. He says, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. He doesn't disagree that Pilate had this authority to either release him or crucify him, but the authority that he had came from one place. It came from God. Not from Rome, as Pilate would have answered. Pilate wouldn't have it unless God had given it to him. So if God is the one to whom all power or authority belongs, and there is no authority that doesn't come from God, what does that say about human government? Those which exist are established by God. Governments around the world, wherever they may be, are established by God. He has brought them into existence. Okay, what kind of governments? Republics, dictatorships, monarchies. There are all kinds of governments throughout the world. We're usually fixated on our own government that we have to deal with, but you look around the world, there's all kinds of governments out there. But they all get their authority from the same place. We get anxious in our government about who's going to get elected. We get anxious when we look at our government about who the next guy or if our guy gets voted in or not. Does he get voted in? Does he get booted out? 
We get so caught up with this, and this makes you so anxious. But we need to understand, and we need to remind ourselves often, I need to remind myself often, that whoever is in there is who God wants to be in there. Wait, what? You're telling me that the guy that's in there is the guy that God wants in there? No, that's what Paul is saying. Paul is telling us right here, those which exist are established by God. God put them there. God determined who our president is. God determined who our governor, our senators, the world leaders across the planet today, yesterday, tomorrow. No one sneaks in. No one cheats their way in that, that sneaks himself right past God. They might cheat or sneak their way in in human standards, but we understand they are not thwarting the plan of God in any way. We get all upset about whether or not someone stuffed a ballot box or hacked a voting machine. The Caesars murdered their way into authority, and Paul is telling them this. And yet they were all established just as God wanted them to be. Turn back to Romans 9. We saw an example of this when we were talking about God's sovereignty in election. Not elections, but election. God's choosing of people to salvation. But when we were talking about that in that context, he was talking about how God had mercy on some and how he hardened others. And Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, was a sinful man who God chose for a specific reason. Look at verse 19, or I'm sorry, 17 of Romans 9. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very reason I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. Here we see that God had a purpose in putting Pharaoh in that position that he was in. He had authority over Egypt. He had authority over the Israelites. No dispute that he had that authority and that it was God that raised him up. He was there by God's design. Was it because he was such a good and righteous man? No, not by any means. In fact, it was his unrighteousness that was useful for God's purposes to have him in power. Why does God let certain men win elections? I don't know, but he does. And as his child, I may not know why an election doesn't go my way, or why decisions are made that I think are absolutely horrible and even ungodly within the government, but I can still take great comfort in knowing that God is absolutely 100% in control of the situation. God hasn't been thwarted. All is not lost. I know that he is still sovereign. His plan will still come about just as he determined that it will. And what do I need to do? I need to trust him and in his sovereign plan. I don't know his plan. I don't know what tomorrow holds, but I trust that he knows. We act like when an election doesn't go our way, all hope is lost. And again, I'm talking to myself as much as I'm talking to anybody here. We may not say it, but we act like it and we seethe over it. No, all is not lost. No, God's man hasn't been left out in the cold. It's all still going according to his plan. We just need to understand that we don't know what that plan entails. Turn back with me to the Old Testament. Prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 27. We'll look at a couple examples here. 
Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, another great guy. Not really. We read about him in Daniel. And we'll go to Daniel in just a minute as well. But Nebuchadnezzar was not a nice man. He may have become one later on. In fact, I personally think there's, he may have become a believer later on. But he wasn't always one. And in most of his life, he was not one. But here in Jeremiah chapter 27, God is telling the other nations, Edom, Moab, Ammon, Tyre, and Sidon, that they are to submit to Nebuchadnezzar. And if you look at verse 5 of Jeremiah 27, he says, I have made the earth, the men and the beasts which are on the face of the earth, by my great power and by my outstretched arm, and I will give it to the one who is pleasing in my sight. This is God speaking here. I will give it to the one who is pleasing in my sight. God has created all things, and he gives it to the one who is pleasing to him. Not that all that that man does, that whoever he chooses, is pleasing, but it's what we saw earlier in Romans 9 with Pharaoh. This is a decision that is pleasing to God. This is God's choice. God makes a decision based on what he desires. And this is the potter deciding what to do with the clay, what to make. And we see his decision there in verse 6. Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant. And I have given him also the wild animals of the field to serve him. All the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson. God established the reign of Nebuchadnezzar and that of his heirs after him. He calls him my servant. That doesn't mean, again, that he was a good man. It means that he's going to serve me. He's serving me in this manner. Unwillingly or willingly doesn't matter. Nebuchadnezzar was serving God. His reign is established to serve God, but only for a time. Look at the rest of verse 7. Until the time of his own land comes, then many nations and great kings will make him their servant. What happens? His reign ends. Someone else will come in and take over. Not the first or the last time that that Fertile Crescent area will change leadership as God desires for it to. You see, what Paul is telling us in Romans 13 isn't new, and it isn't a surprise. It's been the way that God has worked for all of history and is still working today. Turn over to Daniel with me. I said we'd get there. Daniel chapter 2. The book of Daniel is a great illustration of the responsibility of, of God's people to human government. Because what was Daniel? He was actually in the government in Babylon. So there's a lot of examples of this. But in chapter 2 of Daniel, when Daniel is interpreting the first dream for Nebuchadnezzar, as part of that interpretation, he tells him in verse 37 of Daniel 2, You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Here's this young Jewish boy telling the ruler of Babylon that his authority is the result of what God had given him. Again, the fact that he has this authority is not in dispute. But the source of his authority came from God. 
And Nebuchadnezzar wasn't, again, wasn't a pleasant man. You look in the next chapter, chapter 3, he has three guys thrown into a fiery furnace. Turn it up seven times its normal power and throw them in, right? That's the type of guy that he was. Turn over two chapters to chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar has another dream in chapter 4. And in verse 17, he hears these words from God. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. What does God want this king to know? That he has established the authority of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was a great and powerful and mighty king. We just saw that in chapter 2. We just saw in Jeremiah that God had given other nations into his hands. Chapter 2 also said that he was the king of kings. That's a title that will later be used for who? For Jesus, the king of kings. And that was used for Nebuchadnezzar. There's no dispute that he had the authority, but he didn't have it in the way that he thought that he did. Look down in verse 29. Nebuchadnezzar has an oops moment. It's the best way to put it. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? Oops, that's not good. Verse 31, While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared sovereignty has been removed from you. He doesn't even finish the sentence. And God removes his sovereignty from him. And we all know the account, right? He crawls around and eats grass like an animal for seven years. You see the lesson here. It's God's choice and he establishes whom he wishes and he uses the lowliest of men he doesn't use the best men the wisest men the godliest men but we can expect the lowliest of men to be used for this so back in romans 13 we read this in scripture we see how god has established kings rulers authority on the earth how he has always done it and yet we get the idea in our minds today that, well, this doesn't apply to today. It absolutely applies to today. And this is what Paul is telling us. This, there isn't a single leader in a single country on this earth that God hasn't established, that he hasn't put there, given him that authority that he has. It's all part of God doing whatever he will with his clay. You think there weren't people in Israel that are wondering, why is this guy, why is Nebuchadnezzar the king over us now? Why has God allowed this to happen? Of course there were. This, this is what establishes the reason why we are to subject ourselves to our leaders, to our government. We sit there and say, I have no respect for that man. Why would I ever subject myself to him? It's not because of the man. It's not anything to do with the man. It's because of the one that put him there. So what does it mean if I don't subject myself to them? Get to verse 2. We won't get past verse 2 today. 
Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. God is the one who has established the authority. Therefore, when I resist this authority, who am I really resisting? God himself. He established authority, what he has decreed to be so. We oftentimes think that disobeying some of the laws are not that significant. Eh, they're silly, right? Now, of course, we all understand the big ones, right? We shouldn't murder. We shouldn't steal, right? Those are the ones that we, we all understand that. Laws like that are easy. Well, what about the law that says, oh, I pass a little sign that says 35 and eh. Or the laws that say that I shouldn't or that I need to wear a seatbelt. Or the law that says that I should follow certain codes or regulations when I do business. Eh. What about laws that we think are silly and that, we serve, that serve no good purpose? Do we still follow them anyway? I'm not merely disobeying the government, which I may not happen to agree with. I'm disobeying the one who has established that the government has authority over me. He put them in that position, and here he is telling me that I should submit to them. What Paul is telling us here is really pretty simple. But like we talked about before, we like to find ways to have exceptions. So if the government, and we use extremes sometimes. So you're saying if the government says I need to worship Satan every day, I have to do it. No, it's not that there aren't any exceptions. In fact, there are examples throughout Scripture when it is necessary to obey God rather than men. But we do need to understand that those are just that. They're exceptions. They are not a means to try to reestablish the rule and live our lives circumventing the rules. What do we do? Sometimes we talk about these exceptions. We say, oh, I found an exception. Then actually make the jump to, well, if I can disobey the government when they tell me to do this, now the concept of disobedience has been established and I can disobey at my discretion. Or maybe we convince ourselves that the government is headed in a direction that we just can't support and therefore we feel that there's a reason to oppose them at every turn. That's a dangerous mindset for us to get into. Again, Paul is dealing with the rule. And because of the seriousness, the fact that they are established by God, the exceptions to the rule better have some scriptural basis to them. Who can make the determination of exceptions to God's rule? God can. Only God can. That's why the Bible better be our basis for any exceptions that we might come up with for this. Again, I'm not saying that they don't exist. I'm just, I just don't think that they exist to the degree that many people want them to exist. Look at an example. Turn with me over to Acts chapter 4. Example from the early church. In Acts chapter 4, we have Peter and John arrested. And there's, we could read two chapters here, but I'll paraphrase a lot of this, so we just don't have time to go over it all. We have Peter and John arrested. Why? Well, the Jewish leaders were upset with them about preaching Christ. So they throw them in jail. They bring them before the rulers and elders of the people, and they ask them questions. They start to question them about this. Now, Peter answers their questions. He uses this as an opportunity to share the gospel before them. He proclaims Christ before them. 
but he behaves in a very civil manner before them. He's not defiant. He's, he behaves in a civil manner. Now the problem comes when? When they release them. He tells them down in verse 18 of Acts chapter 4. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So they had the authority to arrest them. They had the authority to put them on trial. Now they tell them to stop teaching about Jesus. 19, but Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. When they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. So you see, there is exception here. They tell them to stop preaching about Christ. Peter and John say, we can't do that. We cannot stop preaching Christ. They will obey God when the commands of those in authority over them impose or contradict the commands of God. They will obey God. They were called to preach the gospel. So that's what they're going to do. Now we get into chapter 5, and down in verse 17, they're arrested again. But an angel comes and what? Releases them. Verse 19 but during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison and taking them out said, go stand and speak to the people in the temple, the whole message of this life. So an angel of the Lord frees them. They're arrested, but they're freed and directs them to keep preaching. They go and stand in the temple and they do just that. They preach the gospel. Now the Jewish leaders learn that they'd escape from prison somehow. How did they escape? We don't know. But look at verse 25. But someone came and reported to them, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Wait, we told them not to do that, but that's what they're doing. So then verse 26, then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence, for they were afraid of the people that they might be stoned. Now notice, once again, they're arrested again, third time, third time they're arrested for this without violence. What does that mean? It means the guards are afraid of the people. They wouldn't have fought them if the, if the apostles resisted. The people were on their side. They're walking into this mob of people that are there hearing what the apostles have to speak, and there's a crowd there. What would have happened if Peter and John had said, hey, we don't want to go with you? What would the crowd have done? Well, the officials thought that they'd get stoned if the crowd had that. So they don't do that. They come in. You come with us. What do Peter and John do? They obey. They come with them. But the apostles come willingly. They willingly allow themselves to be arrested once again. Now look at verse 27. When they had brought them, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. Once again, clear-cut exception. You said we can't preach his name, but we obey God in this, not you. Now what does this get them? The council wants to kill them after this. But they decide against it, and instead they flog them, they beat them, and then they release them. What's the apostles' response? After they had been unjustly arrested three times, 
told not to preach the gospel, and then flogged, whipped, beaten by the governing authorities, what's their response? Verse 41. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. They were rejoicing in the fact that they were worthy to suffer for his name, to suffer for their Lord. They were obedient to God and they suffered for it. They willingly surrendered themselves to the authority of those over them, but they drew the line when it came to the clear commands to disobey God. There are others example throughout scripture. Book of Daniel, I mentioned before, several exceptions. The king decrees that the Jewish captives will eat his food. Daniel and his friends, they can't eat that food. It would violate the law. So they seek permission to not eat the food. And God graciously grants that to them. The king says to bow down before his idol in in Daniel chapter 3. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah will not do it. Three men standing up in this entire plain, not bowing before this entire idol. And they willingly go into a fiery furnace for that. The king said no one could pray to any god. They had to pray to him instead in Daniel chapter 6. Daniel refused to stop praying to God. And he willingly forfeit his life by being thrown into a dead of lions. Now, of course, we know God rescued him from that. But Daniel didn't know that. He, as far as he knew, he was being thrown to his death. But we have to admit... Even in our country, these types of exceptions happen very rarely, if they happen at all. So again, while there may be exceptions, opposing those in authority should not be our go-to stance. It should be the last resort when there is a clear-cut reason to do it. Back in Romans 13, again, I haven't forgotten we're in Romans. We're almost out of time. What's the consequence of the resistance to authority? And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Now, there's some debate on what this means. What's this condemnation? But I see this pretty clearly as judgment or punishment by those same authorities. Some say that this is condemnation from God, but I don't, I don't think that's what fits here. And I think most commentators would say that's not what he's talking about. What we're seeing is that the consequence of civil disobedience is punishment. The governing authorities have been established by God, and part of that authority involves the right to punish those in disobedience. A believer who breaks the law, just like anyone else, should expect punishment. There are consequences for their actions. And that's exactly where Paul will take the discussion next into verse 3. We we won't get there. Uh, We'll save that for our next lesson. So we are to submit ourselves to the governing authorities. This isn't optional. It's not something that we can freely opt out of. If there are clear-cut times when we are told that we cannot serve God, that we cannot preach the word, that we cannot obey God in some way, then yes, we must obey God rather than men. But we also need to keep in mind that subjecting ourselves to the governing authorities is also obeying God. Because we have it right here. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. He has established authority over us. We are to submit ourselves to that authority as if it were his authority, because it is his authority. 
Next week we'll continue on, and unfortunately it won't get any easier. We'll talk about capital punishment. We'll talk about everyone's favorite subject, taxes. As appropriately, I got my tax thing in the mail this week that talking about it. So anyway, we won't get into that right now. We'll get into that next week. So we'll save that for our next lesson. Let's close in a word of prayer this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity that we have to be in your word once again. We thank you, Lord, for this section of scripture. We thank you, Lord, for your clear instructions to us on every area of our lives. And Lord, we just pray that, that we would just be searching your scriptures, that we would be uh, obedient to your word in every, in every area. We thank you, Lord, for um, the book of Romans. We thank you, Lord, for the instructions that you give us throughout this book, the, the clear um, instructions, the clear uh, theology and doctrine that we get from this book, Lord. And we just pray that we could use these things in our lives to honor and glorify you each and every day. We thank you, Lord, for um, our time here this morning. We do pray that you would be with us uh, in the next hour as well as we go into um, uh, the teaching hour. We just pray that for uh, Josh as he brings us the word. Pray that you would give us understanding into your word once again from the uh, Gospel of John. And we just pray, Lord, that, that this would be a time that would honor and glorify you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.